battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Welcome back, folks. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime, the second half of our program that is online only. Uh, We are still talking to Paul Lindsay coming up. Later in overtime, we're going to be talking to Hayden Wright, a Alabama English teacher, president of the Miners Auxiliary down in Brookwood, about a lesson that she gave some of her students about Cesar Chavez's address to the Commonwealth Club of California uh, and the conversation that ensued after that. So um, looking forward to that conversation. I also just wanted to share this tweet that came across my timeline uh, during the break that is just really puts a lot of confidence in um you know in in the billionaire class right uh, you know before i was anti-billionaire um and now i think you know i'm starting to warm up to them uh because they're really proving themselves here it is earlier today tesla announced that some of its cars will be running the beta version of its self-driving system happening now a multi-car pileup on the Bay Bridge in San Francisco involving 18 injuries reportedly caused by a Tesla, quote, suddenly driving erratically. Officials say 16 people wow. were, involved, were involved in the trash, eight adults and eight children. Wow. Love it. Uh, yeah, so, I mean... Way to go, Elon. Incredibly competent billionaire class that we've got. Uh, no reason to worry about uh, our society. So let's continue this conversation with Paul Lindsay. Paul, you were talking about uh, Paul Lindsay is a a uh, railroad worker, a member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, a Teamsters affiliate, and on the steering committee of Railroad Workers United, an interunion cross-craft solidarity caucus of railroad labor. Paul, you were talking about the contract that was negotiated with, you know, I say, quote, the help of President Biden and Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh that gave you, and, and so the things that you had laid out was that it gave you three unpaid days off if you were sick that had to be scheduled 30 days in advance (laughs) could only happen on certain days of the week and that they wouldn't discipline you if you were literally in the hospital and they were able to and i didn't i didn't realize this until you just told me because i my impression of the deal was that it was it, it was like only marginally better and that was that was the issue with it but you laid out this uh this part of the contract that is actually a step backwards that would allow um, that would allow them to that would allow the the rail companies to call you in even more short notice than they do already, and so you know there's just all sorts of problems with this contract. Uh, was what uh, this you know negotiated agreement? Is there anything was there anything else that that you felt was important to share? Uh, about the contract, uh, about why, you know, uh, your uh, sisters and brothers in the union and and in other unions voted it down? 
Well, so the two provisions on self-protecting pools and automatic markup rules, uh, it laid out basically a foundation allowing for this, but it didn't give us any real details. It says that, oh, we're going to allow for this, and after you sign the contract, well, we'll go ahead and negotiate and bargain about it then. So mm. we still don't actually know what it is. It's just kind of a blank check. Um, and yeah, the railroads have shown many times in the past that you give them an inch, they take a mile. There's not really any integrity uh, in this outfit. We already, so as far as the, the railroads are trying to play this, like, well, you're going to have a couple of scheduled off days. And our even our union is, is pushing this idea that, oh, we're going to have a couple um, predictable days off. Well, we already have scheduled days off every year. It's called taking vacation. And the railroads will yank our vacation when they feel like it. We, we've had in the past where they say I'm going on vacation for a full week and have a plane ticket scheduled for, uh, you know, and a vacation starting at midnight on Friday, right? And then the railroad calls you to work at 2359 on Thursday night to go to work on a two-day trip. So I guess you're going to have to lay off sick and take the attendance points if you plan on catching your flight. So they already won't live up to our existing contractual days off. Um, so what's, why are we to think that we're going to, uh, they're going to live up to a, a, a few new promise days. So um, that's another reason for it. Basically there's a, just a general lack of trust in our industry because they don't deserve the trust. Right. 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 So, then the uh, so now that you know, I think everybody has voted now. A majority, uh, uh, you know, unions representing the majority of labor have voted it down, um, and the strike dates are all set for December the 9th. So, uh, sketch out the possible paths forward for us, okay? So, with that strike date being there, everyone wants to focus on the strike date, but uh, unfortunately. Congress has made it very clear they're not going to allow uh, employees to take ownership of their lives. They would um, almost surely force us back to work one way or another. They can force binding arbitration. They could force a contract and just say, this is the law. Um, but, you know, one thing I would have, if there's any congressman that actually listened to your podcast or uh, your show here, um, they also could offer us a favorable contract if they so chose. But right. um, unfortunately, they never seem, doesn't matter which party, uh, no one truly seems to support labor. They can talk about it. Uh, they, they can talk about it at our, at our conventions. Mm -hmm. um, but really, when it comes down to it, it really seems like this whole situation was just pushed, kicked the can down the road until after the election. Because... Now they can force us back to work, right. and regardless of who whose name is on that bill, the election already happened, so there'll be no repercussions for it. Um, that'll that's so one way or another, they will most likely force us back to work. And everyone knows how devastating a work stoppage uh, could be for the industry, and we've been talking about this for months, especially several months ago when we thought it was actually legitimately going to happen. Um, but what about when the companies themselves instigate the work stoppage? So when the strike was about to happen, when we were just a couple days uh, before it, actually for almost a week leading up to it, the railroads themselves started embargoing customers and shutting intermodal ports and tying down trains. 
early, shutting down mm-hmm. the economy to try to twist the government's arm into action. And no one wants to talk about that. Everyone wants to talk about, oh, a labor shortage. Not one hour of, of time has been lost on the account of labor. It has all been at the railroads that these giant BlackRock-owned corporations that buy back their own shares and take COVID bailouts, they were the ones that stopped your rail shipments for the first few, for the days leading up to the strike. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's such an important thing to underline is that, you know, the, the threat is the quote unquote threat, you know, is, is really as much or more, or well, it is all on capital. It's all on these rail companies uh, for one reason or another, because the, the, because they have all that, all the power in their hands to end the strike by giving y'all what you're asking for which is very reasonable very reasonable right (laughs) sick leave in the year 2022 are you freaking kidding me really like i mean and so they could just nix the thing in the bud right there but also so if they don't do that and y'all strike it's their fault and then obviously if they uh do a lockout it's it's super their fault (laughs) And that's essentially what they did when when they were looking Mm -hmm. at at us striking. For the several days leading up to it, they were initiating a soft lockout and just saying, well, we're we're trying to institute an orderly shutdown. But um, bottom line, these these companies are too big to fail. They they know that no matter what happens, they can do anything they want. They could run their business right into the ground. And bottom line, big daddy government will come in there and bail them out. So that's really what what it comes to. Yeah, well, what are Democrats in the government? What are the conversations? What are the conversations right now? Because you mentioned that, you know, that, that they could, you know, there, there's seems to me there's more or less three kind of short term paths. And that's either that there's a strike or a lockout. And that's one option. There's an implemented contract on the company's terms. But you could also just as easily have an implemented contract on uh, the workers' terms. And the government could just impose the workers' terms on the companies. But the conversation around that seems totally limited to, uh, you know, to lefty podcasts or, you know, radio shows like ours. Um, you know, I don't see any conversation about implementing the workers' terms or even more than, you know, I mean, if I was president, right, I, I, I would be implementing like double the work, triple the workers' terms as punishment for letting the, <laughs> letting the thing go this long, right? right? I mean, that, that's what you really should be doing, you know, because your requests have always been reasonable. And so what, uh, uh, you know, a justice-minded, you know, president and government would be saying, Look, you know, obstinate companies, uh, we're going to impose not only what the unions are asking for, but we're going to give we're going to say you have to give them double what they're asking for. But there that's not even that is not even in the conversation at all. You know, and, and even just imposing the workers terms is is really, really kind of a fringe part of the conversation. So what why why is that? I say because essentially both parties are owned by the same people in one form or another. Hey, they have there's there's subtle differences, but we all know right. that money is really what directs our politics. And the railroads are unchallenged monopolies, just like many companies in the United States. And and then you look at the people behind the railroads, so you look at the primary shareholders of the big four monopoly railroads. It's BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, the same people that own 
basically every other corporation in America, you know, and, and it's the same money behind it all. And they can buy any politicians they want and they can direct the agenda. And I think we all know this, and this is in every, every single industry. This isn't just the railroad. Um, we just happen to be the industry that is, is receiving the most coverage right now. Mm -hmm. But I believe that our fight here to be able to at least have the right to strike is so important to anyone that believes that they should have the right to unionize because we are legally allowed to just be forced back to work without question. Congress is just acceptable practice. Well, how in the world can you claim to have a free or democratic country in any way if people don't own their labor? Right. Right. So, and so the, you mentioned earlier, you know, these companies are too big to fail and basically they feel like they can, and, and, and it seems to be the case that they can get away with whatever they want and the government is going to bail them out. And so something that Railroad Workers United has been pushing is for uh, the government to just take over the rails. If we're going to, you know, if we as a society are going to allow these monopolies to exist, if we're going to be the ones that are going to be footed with the bill, whenever there is a need to bail out this industry, uh, we should just own it. We should just, it, it should just be ours. It should be the public's, uh, like it is in other countries. And so, uh, so, so talk to us about the benefits to society and, and to y'all that public ownership would, would bring, uh, you know, and wh why is it that y'all are pushing this as a, as a long-term solution to these issues of, uh, of these companies running, uh, running the show? So, uh, yeah, that's that's a topic that unfortunately people hear it and they automatically make assumptions. We're not suggesting that we just need to have a giant freight Amtrak company that controls everything. That's not what we're suggesting at all. What we're suggesting is aligning ourselves uh, more aligned with what the rest of the developed world uh, is doing. And that's that the rails themselves, the, the infrastructure is owned and dispatched by some sort of government agency and private companies can pay to use the track. I mean, that's, mm. that's what we do with the highways, with the interstate highways. Uh, mm. They are owned, they are owned and maintained and everything. And there's open access. So there's competition. We don't have a comp uh, much of a competition problem in the trucking industry. We sure do with uh, the rail industry. Um, so the reason why we've kind of come to this conclusion is watching our industry have zero effective investment in modern technology, in electrification, in things that we need for the future to have a, a functional, growing, productive rail industry, which is vitally important to the United States economy. Instead, they buy back their own shares. I mean, for the last over a decade, every single year, the railroads have spent far more on share buybacks. And then on top of that, dividends than they have on any sort of investment or improvement in the railroad. They have no uh, intention on really investing in their in the growth of the industry. They they have been shrinking the industry because they want the most profitable captive shipper traffic they can. They drive all the other traffic off onto the highways. So every every time the railroad. Every time the railroad drives away a customer intentionally and drives them to trucks because, well, we want to make more money, and they, they do. They keep the highest paying shippers. They drive these trucks, these truckloads, onto our government-funded highways. 
So it's it's almost like an externality. They uh, we're paying for their record share buybacks and dividends and record profitability every quarter by government subsidized highways. So the idea is to bring all of the railroads under the same umbrella. And these private railroads, they can they can always they can operate and pay to use the track, just like trucks pay to use the interstate. There's nothing wrong with that. That is the idea: is public ownership of the rail, so that we can grow our system and electrify it and expand it and uh, use and, and compare the budgets of the highway system as well as the rail system when we make our transportation decisions in this country. And I don't think that's a very radical idea at all. No, um, right. One, one final thing I'll add to that as well is, is um, before I turned over there, is that uh, in 1917, I believe it was, we, we actually did, we, were, we actually nationalized the U.S. rail system during World War I because the railroads back then were fighting and bickering over uh, profits and competition and everything, and they weren't investing in, in growth, and they, there was a shortage of locomotives and a shortage of cars, and they couldn't move the freight for the war effort. And we nationalized the railroad for a period of about three years. And during that time, the industry grew exponentially and got new in, new locomotives and new equipment and new infrastructure. And then at the end of that, there, there was a plan to potentially make it a permanent thing. But for various reasons, it didn't happen. And it went back to private ownership. We, we've done it before. And I would say we do have a war to fight. I mean, if, if you guys want to... <laughs> reduce carbon, you know, electrification right. of the railroads is really the way to do it. I mean, not not these expensive batteries and going and mining lithium out of the ground and, and cobalt and everything. You, you electrify the railroads. That's where you should be starting. Right? Absolutely. So. Well, Paul, I think that that's, you know, that this is all really great. And and, I, and you definitely edified me about y'all's stance on public ownership of the rails. I, I thought that it was more of a of a having a, you know, a giant, you know, national Amtrak kind of thing for, for the rails. But uh, and, and so even though this is a this is, you know, a more modest proposal, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I think Absolutely. it makes a lot of sense uh, to just basically bring the rails in line with what we do with the highways. And so, you know, I appreciate you laying that out for us. Um, and was there anything else that that you thought was that that you feel is important to let people know on this uh, you know on this issue of of the uh, rail dispute coming up? Um, just uh, let people know that if if regardless of how this turns out, regardless of even if there were a strike for a few days, if the Congress forces back to work, regardless of how this ends. If we have a bad contract, there are people lining up in droves, even people with many, many years of service that are leaving the industry. Hmm. And um, people are worried about a strike. Well, record, uh, you know, uh, record attrition numbers are probably going to hurt the industry and hurt the economy far worse uh, than any labor strike would. You know, so that's right. really what you're focused on is growing the industry and keeping um, keeping certified, highly, uh, highly trained people that operate their trains and that know every inch of their territory and keeping them from leaving. Right. So uh, I appreciate that, Paul. I appreciate you yeah, taking, taking the time to talk to us. I did want to ask, a ask you this and this, and, and, um, I had been aware of this before and, but I wasn't thinking of it, uh, for this interview. And, and um, and so I, I know that you're not, 
you, you didn't come like prepared to talk about this, but uh, but Braxton Wright mentioned this in our chat, and he's a he's a coal miner here in Alabama. Is one of them on, been on strike for over 600 days, and he mentioned mm-hmm. that CSX has been hauling scab coal from Warrior Met, um, and and I know that CSX is one of the union rail lines and uh, rail companies and and so is there has there not been any conversation among the the rail unions to to stop to honor the the picket line in, in that instance and and to stop transporting this uh this scab coal for warrior met here in alabama so uh as far as that's concerned the railroads themselves they're a common carrier so according to federal law they can't uh, refuse the coal. They, they can't uh, refuse products because they are a common carrier. I've never personally heard about this issue. It doesn't surprise me. I've never heard of it uh, trying to keep up on national issues. Right. Um, but another thing as well is a lot of these factories, a lot of these refineries actually, or, you know, refineries and mines and everything, a lot of them have their own switching locomotives that they use to build some of these trains. And a lot of times the you know, the trains will be, I don't know the configuration of this one, but the train will be set up, prepared and ready to go. And the train crew just climbs on it. Mm. But obviously, if there was a picket line in front of the train, I don't know any of my coworkers that would cross the picket line. They're not, right. they're not crossing the picket line. They're just uh, getting and on y'all the have train. in your contracts and y- y'all have in your contracts the ability to honor picket lines, right? Because, I mean, it's something that I that I see all the time is that, you know, if just one of these unions even one of the smaller ones go on strike it would trigger a national rail strike because the others would would honor would honor those picket lines so is that like any picket line um yes so if the carmen were on strike or uh, the the conductors uh voted down the contract and really ours should have been voted down as engineers as well it was such a slim margin but yes, any any picket line, we're not we're not going to cross the picket line, and and I don't know of any of my coworkers that would willingly cross a picket line set up. It's not going to happen. So yes, they need to solve the labor dispute across the entire industry with all the unions, because if there's a picket line, none of us are going to work. Right, right. Who is the which union represents CSX folks? Uh, it would be the same with the other railroads, depending on what. Craft oh, they'd have different in. crafts. Okay. I see, yes. I see. As far as conductors and engineers, it'd be the brother to locomotive engineers, uh, for engineers, and then the smart sheet metal and rail transportation workers uh, that represent the conductors. Um, there's yeah, there's a whole bunch of different unions depending on the crafts, but those two are the biggest, followed by the. Brotherhood of uh, Maintenance Away Employees, I believe, is the next largest. And, well, yeah, um, I'd, if you if you wouldn't mind uh, letting us letting us know if, if there's been any conversations about um, about that, because because I know that that's something that that some of these some of these miners down here have have had an issue with about you know as conversations about this rail strike have have come up you know they have felt uh they felt really conflicted about like how you know about offering their support or being very vocal about offering their support because of the fact that these you know these like quote unquote you know union rails are union railroad companies are are transporting their coal and really really undercutting their position so uh so i I know that i know that they would really appreciate any support that uh that that y'all could give them from the railroad workers united or uh, anything that y'all could do inside your unions so I would, I would, I would say, just uh, from an observation point, being an engineer, 
Um, if I were to see a picket line standing in the tracks in front of the locomotive, I'm not getting on. I'll just, I'll call the railroad and say, there's a picket line I'm not crossing. I don't think anyone's tried that. And I'm not suggesting mm-hmm. anything, but I'm just saying, personally, I wouldn't cross a picket line if there was a picket line that's standing out there in front of the locomotive where I get on. But if there's no picket, they can't, um, you know, there's nothing suggesting that there's a picket line. If they're just picketing the, the coal plant and not right. uh, people picking up their coal, you know, the yeah. equipment being used to use it, then how are we to know there's a picket line? Mm. So, And how are you to know that that coal is coming from Warrior Med as opposed to any, you know, the, uh, the, the green green mountain or, or, you know, Peabody mines or whatever? Yeah, so, okay. So there's we're opportunities... Just, getting on a train is all we're doing yeah yeah i think there's opportunities for some dialogue then uh moving forward and uh i just uh, again want to thank you for for coming on the show i want to thank you after working a long night too yeah man uh really that means a lot the fact that you have a dedication to your brothers and sisters that you'd be willing to come on a show like ours after working a long shift just to spread the word uh so thank you for all you're doing thank you for yeah, railroad workers, you, y'all are y'all are the backbone of the country. Um, you deserve what you're asking for and so much more. And we we're gonna do anything we can to uh, keep the pressure up and spread the word. And uh, just wishing y'all love and solidarity in the fights ahead. Awesome. Well, uh, take care and hope to see you again. Absolutely. Bye. All right. Bye. All right. Uh. Here in about 20 minutes, we're going to be talking to Hayden Wright uh, about Cesar Chavez, uh, but we've got some other stories that we'll go to really quick uh, before she jumps on the line. I think we've got her scheduled to jump on the line at about 11.50 or, or noon. But she is in the she Zoom. Is in the Zoom. Um, okay, so well, we, we can go ahead and bring her on, and we can get to those stories after, just be more respectful of her time. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so I'll work on getting her in the Zoom. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, well, as a so, former teacher, and of course, my wife is an English teacher like Hayden, and so um, definitely interested in that conversation. And and you know, I don't know uh, if she's prepared to talk about it at all, but um, I'd love some of her reactions about the uh, SDEC conversations we've had recently. I know she was in the chat uh, when we were interviewing Randy Kelly and had some SDEC people call in, so. Uh, any, any feedback she has there, of course, would be cool. And, um, I know Kim Kelly just came out with a great new article highlighting that it's been over 600 days now with the UMWA strike in Brookwood. And Kim's article was in Jezebel. She focused primarily on the women involved in the strike. We've done a lot of history. It's a very good piece, uh, and I hope mm-hmm. I hope spread the word to new audiences. Um, you know, I don't know what the audience is like for for Jezebel, but it's probably not the same as uh, right. you know, like the Real News Network or something like that. So, hopefully, uh, got the word out to some some new folks because the the work that Hayden and and her sisters are doing down there uh, to support the miners is just it's fantastic. It's fantastic, and it. Sounds to me like most of the men down there would would fully admit, you know, they they wouldn't have been able to make it over six hundred days without the women there behind them For and sure. uh, beside them, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so we've got now on the line Hayden Wright. She's an English teacher, president of the Women's Auxiliary down there in Brookwood. Uh, 
Hayden is not on the line. Oh, Hayden's yeah, not on the line I think yet? I think I think she must be having some connection issues. Yeah, I tried to let her in, but it didn't didn't happen. Oh, uh, she dropped she dropped off. Yeah, so okay, gotcha. uh, I will keep my eyes peeled if Hayden comes back in. Uh, we will switch yeah, well, over we'll to her. I'm happy to to move on. I know we had a couple yeah. other things on the docket we could talk about yeah, this afternoon or this morning. A, we we got a couple other things, and and let's do this one because this one will be pretty quick. Uh, the 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 Amazon workers in Alabama and and across the country and across the world in thirty different countries. 30 different countries took various actions against Amazon to protest their treatment of their employees' uh, actions from strikes to pickets to protests to demonstrations. And here in Alabama, the striking mine workers actually partnered with the RWDSU's organizing committee in Bessemer to hold a demonstration outside of the Bessemer facility. Uh, And we actually got a special address just for us from Big Mike on the scene last night sent to us uh, from Hayden Wright, who was there uh, with, uh, you know, in, in her capacity as, as president of the, of the Women's Auxiliary down there. I think we had a few other comrades down there as well. Absolutely. Uh, Birmingham, Birmingham DSA. DSA was down there. Yeah. And we got a, like I said, we got a special address just for us from Big Mike. So let's uh, let's hear what he had to say. Poster, as you know, everybody calls me Big Mike. All my friends do. We're standing here today in solidarity making Amazon pay. Excuse me one second. We want to make Amazon pay today and we want them to pay because we want them to pay the workers who's putting all the work in, who's made Jeff Bezos the richest man in the world because of the work that they have done. So we standing in solidarity all around the world letting Jeff Bezos know that this is just not a BHM1 thing. This is around the world at all of his facilities. Everybody is complaining about the same thing. Like I said before, the only smile that you see is on that building or on the commercials that you see come across your screen. The smile is not on the workers' faces. That's what a smile needs to be, on the workers' faces who's breaking their back that's been doing everything that they can. They need a living wage, not a minimum wage. They can't even afford their apartments or anything with the wages that they're making. So we're here standing in solidarity to let them know that the union is still here. We haven't went anywhere and we hear them and someone cares. Love to see that from Big Mike. Uh, One of the, as somebody said on Twitter, and I can't remember who it was, uh, one of Alabama's biggest labor celebrities, and I I think that that is is certainly an accurate statement about Big Mike. Uh, (laughs) So we appreciate him taking the time to to record that statement for us and uh, wishing them all the best and uh, really happy that they were able to take part in that and that they were able to get, uh, you know, uh, they were able to participate in, in that action with so many other workers from across the country um, uh, and across the world. I mean, like I said, in 30 different countries, uh, Amazon workers uh, uh, took part in demonstrations against the company. Um, yeah, and on Black Friday, uh, um, yep. perfect perfect time to do so. And, yeah, I really appreciate all of our sisters and brothers in the Birmingham area who pulled that event together. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, Hayden is on the line. Uh, All right. Do you believe? Yeah. So we have 
We have on the line now Hayden Wright. She is uh, president of the Women's Auxiliary down in Brookwood uh, for the Miners, UMWA. She's an English teacher. And uh, she. we brought her on to talk, to talk about um, a, a lesson uh, that she gave about Cesar Chavez to her children in that discussion. But... Um, uh, but but Adam mentioned that he, he wanted to get her thoughts, if she had any, about our conversations that we've been having over the last couple of weeks about the state of the Democratic Party. And so uh, so with that, Hayden, you know, thanks for thanks for jumping on and taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. I always love coming and spending some time with you guys. Um, state of the Democratic Party, that's a good question. Um, I am yeah. a rep for district 49 and i also sit on the executive board for congressional district six um i'm the vice chair of the youth caucus which i will say our caucus is amazing they're doing great things good works um several of them were actually out with us last night in Bessemer, supporting those workers that's great i wish the main party was interested in actually being out in the field supporting workers that hasn't really been what i've seen some of the candidates were fantastic. They had no really support from the state party. You're talking about Dr. Will Boyd, who's incredible. Um, Lisa Ward, who ran a good campaign. But those were independent campaigns. There were volunteers there with themselves. It wasn't with the state party. So I really hate that the party put out statements looking like they should be thanking them for something. Mm. I don't really see that having been the case. Um, so yeah, so right now it's questionable. I do know for a fact last week when it was said that email lists haven't been given, that was inaccurate. They had those prior to the meeting that actually didn't make quorum because it was scheduled at the same time as the labor notes conference because myself and the chair and then the vice chair of labor youth affairs, which is on the executive board, we spent about two weeks getting with all of our members, getting their contact information, compiling it into a document and making sure that we provided that to the party. So we had gathered all that information over the course of working for several weeks to make sure that they had that prior to that meeting. So I do know that wasn't necessarily accurate when that was stated on the air last week. Mm, that's a shame. I, I hate to hear that. And so have you... You know, uh, since then, I think it's actually been two weeks, maybe even since we talked to Randy Kelly and in, in, in the intervening two weeks, have you seen, I, I know, obviously, you know, two weeks is, it's enough time to send an email at least, I think, but it, it's not, you know, it's not enough to turn the party around. But have you seen anything in the last two weeks from, from the party about, uh, about moving forward from the elections? Um, I have not seen anything from the actual party chair. Um, Tabitha has still sent out some communications. Um, we were sent out an email from Joe Reed, which was, is the other caucus, the minority caucus. He is the vice chair of that caucus. Um, he sent out an email condemning the violence and shooting and showing some support for the LGBTQ community as they're going through that time. Okay. Well, that's that that's that's great to uh, great to hear that that there was some statement on that but but definitely a shame that it doesn't seem like there's been a whole lot of work since we've had that conversation with Randy Kelly about you know building uh you know building connections within the people that are willing to spend their time uh working for the party that's definitely a shame yeah absolutely and I and I'll get off this I, I just wanted to kind of get your 
your reaction because I know you listened. I know you were in the chat. I know you know the people who, who were talking and calling. Um, but, you know, it seems to me that there is a dedicated core of people in Alabama who are committed to progressive social change, who are willing to do something about it. The fact that we had over 100 people come to the Troublemaker School, the fact that, you know, folks like you and Big Mike and, and others are able to pull dozens of people to these events all over the state. There is there is a core group of people out there who are willing to do some work. Um, I think it's there's a disconnect with that and the political party as a whole. And what I hope is that the dedicated core can start to build a coalition statewide, whether that's whether the you know the ADP leadership is on board or not. But there has to be a coalition of working class people, a diverse coalition, if we're ever going to make any progress in the state. Uh, and I think I think we have some good, talented, organizing minded folks who can put our heads together, develop a, a platform and a program that appeals to people and get candidates that can can advance that program. Um, so I'll get off my soapbox there. Yeah, and I would like thoughts. to point out the people in the chat that yeah, were chatting yeah. in, that comment yeah. afters, those were all members of the Youth Caucus. So our caucus is all willing to put in the work. We have right. offered to take over social media accounts. We've offered to do those things. But so far, a place hasn't been made for us. So I think right. that's a big thing is that if you want progress, everyone deserves a place. And I'm sorry, that is Everly who's trying to tell y'all hello. Hey, Everly. <laughs> hello. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I and She's growing like a weed. Yeah, no, no kidding. You now, now, Everly is the one that was she was born right before the strike began, right? Did we lose? That's her? correct. Oh, she okay. was only four months old when we went on strike. So that's all she really knows is yeah. being on strike. Mm, I could, couldn't imagine. Yeah, I mean, I'm just picturing her, the little baby that we met in Brookwood, yeah. you know, last May. Uh, and now here she is. So it's, it's definitely wild to think about. Um, I was mentioning before you came on the air that Kim Kelly had a recent article out in Jezebel that uh, I thought did a very good job highlighting you and your sisters who have been so involved in the strike. Um, is there any kind of uh, anything to report to us now that we're, we're at over day 600? Um, I know you had international uh, UMWA President Cecil Roberts in attendance recently and, and the actions that y'all took. Um, anything anything to share with us about the state of the strike? Um, I would say definitely the actions are still being planned. That was just the start. We're planning on picking things back up. What people don't understand sometimes is they're like, well, why haven't you been doing this the whole time? Well, we've been under huge, huge injunctions with massive penalties. That's like the reason why we didn't sit down in the road is because we were facing because of Alabama's unfriendly worker laws and the reason they don't want people to perform civil disobedience that brings change. We could have actually gone to jail for 30 days and had a $200,000 fine just for civil disobedience, just for, for a peaceful protest, right? protesting working conditions and freedom of speech could have gotten us put in jail for 30 days which is absolutely insane that that's the state that we live in. So I think that's something people need to be aware of that 
that needs to change that we can't be afraid because we're being threatened with absurd penalties for displaying our basic rights that should be constitutionally protected. Mm, mm. Absolutely. I mean, this is a, what's our state motto? We dare defend our rights. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Hayden and about a thousand of her friends have tried to dare defend their rights. Yeah. And and we see the state of Alabama is is trying to stop them from doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, let's with Jacob one time to where when we were out doing a demonstration to where one of the cops said, no, your freedom of speech only is valid based on time, place, and interest of the government. Is a video. We have him on video saying that. That's absolutely not what the Constitution says, but that's what we're up against here. It's probably the most honest answer he could have given you, though, in, in some ways. Well, so, you know, uh, we appreciate that update on the strike and, and you know, uh, you have been and, and I'm sure you'll continue to keep us up to date on, on anything and, and we'll try to make it out there uh, as often as we can, especially when there's a big action. But the reason that I, I you know, wanted to bring you on today mainly was uh, was in the other hat that you wear when you're not, you know, <laughs> keeping uh, uh, uh working to keep alive the longest ongoing strike in the country right now, uh, which, you know, I assume is just incredibly easy and you've got lots of spare time from uh, doing (laughs) that. Uh, But in your other hat, as a teacher here in Alabama, uh, you said the other day on Twitter, we had some amazing discussion in my English 10 class yesterday. We are reading and analyzing Cesar Chavez's address uh, address to the Commonwealth Club of California which led to a discussion and additional readings of how child labor is still happening in Alabama and the country today. And I thought that that was, like, fascinating uh, that you were able to have that discussion with with, uh, with your kids and uh, sophomores in high school. And so I thought that uh, I was like, well, yeah, you know, that would be a really good really good thing to talk to her about on the show, talk about how, how her students received that. And, and so before we talk about their reaction to the piece. Give us, give us just you know like a like a synopsis, a Sparknotes version of of the address to the Commonwealth of California. What was Cesar Chavez, uh, a leader of the United Farm Workers Union? What was he trying to get across in that address? So how we framed this whole unit in reading was we were looking at how an individual can change society how an individual can come together with other individuals for a common purpose and make change. So we read the address, we broke it down into chunks and what some of my students said that they took away from it as we we're reading is that workers were taking the blame for everything, that workers were being exploited, workers were dying in the fields, but yet anytime anything happened, crops failed. Anytime the environment was questioned, that these growers would turn around and blame the workers and they would be punished for that. To where, in fact, they were working with poor living conditions and we broke it down that way. We had also, prior to this, had read the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire articles. We had also went and read the St. Petersburg Workmen's Petition that led to the bloody Sunday massacre. And then in correlation with this reading that we did with Cesar Chavez, we read the poem Immigrants in Our Own Land, which is Jimmy's Baca's poem, where it talks about the dream of coming to America and creating this better life and quickly seeing that that wasn't the case, 
that once you came here, things didn't get better. For most people, they got worse, that your conditions were actually worse than before. And for a lot of people, that led to incarceration. So we talked about how being incarcerated in the prison system played into you were either a worker in the field that was being treated basically like a slave, or you became incarcerated, in which case you were again treated as less than human. And how the dreams that those people had when they came here were the same, but the outcomes were drastically different. So I think what I wanted them to take from that is that they have the power to make those changes. When they see an injustice happening, that they have the voice to stand up and say something against it, that they don't have to be afraid. And I think it's important to note that I have a very diverse school to where I work, to where I do have a good amount of Hispanic students. I do have a good amount of, of black students. I do have white students. So it's a very diverse makeup. And most of my students in class, when I asked them at the beginning, they want to go into the workforce. Some of them want to go to college. Most of them want to go into the workforce. So as a teacher, I feel like it's my job to teach them how to advocate for themselves, to teach them what their options are, to let them know about people that fought to give people the rights, to give people the workplace safeties, to give people what they have now, that those weren't always given, that people, no matter what, deserve the right to be treated as human beings. They deserve to have representation in their workplace. They deserve to have time with family. They deserve to live, not just survive. And what was the response from, you know, from, from the students? The, you know, these are, these are pretty young, uh, pretty young, uh, young folks, you know, like, uh, when you're a sophomore in high school, you're 15, 16, I think is the age. Um, and, I don't know when I was 15 or 16 I don't know how deeply I was thinking about these you know serious issues so so what was what, what was their what were their reactions to this um to this unit in, in in your class I would say this was one of the most engaging units that they were actually a part of the discussion because a lot of these were like well I'm working right now at this fast food place and they don't let me off when I'm sick and they threaten me if I don't well that's not okay. They really can't do that. It kind of opened up those discussions on even what they're facing personally. And for some of my students, they're like, well, I know that these companies in town are hiring people and working them outside of the hours that they're supposed to. So if they're not supposed to do that, what can we do about it? But then the most meaningful to me was after class and one of my students came up and gave me a hug and said, Ms. Wright, this is the first time anybody's ever taught something positive about someone from my culture. This is the first time anyone's ever had us read anything and talk about something to where someone that I can relate to, someone that comes from my same background, has made changes and helped people. And that to me was heartbreaking that they are 16 years old and that up until now they didn't see a voice that was their voice that it was something that they could represent, that they could strive to. Because she was like, you know, I want to go to college. And he, she's like, in this reading, he talks about with all these injustices happening, that could never happen. And she said, but now it can. She said, so now I know that I have a place and that it's okay that all these things happened and are still happening. So I think that for me was the biggest reason. And that in itself would have been a reason I'm glad I taught the unit that I'm glad we did those readings because it gave those students 
a chance to see themselves in history, to see themselves in literature, to see that no matter what your background is, that you can make positive changes, that you can be and do whatever you want, that you're capable of anything. I think that having a, teach, a teacher like you would be uh, would be really, really beneficial for so many people in Alabama to be able to hear from, you know, uh, hear uh, somebody who, who who understands, you know, the struggles of, of the working class and, and what they had to do to get there and, and is interested in teaching about those struggles from history. You know, I, I think that, you know, for that, like we just don't learn much about how working people changed history. Usually, we hear about this or that president, or this or that politician, or or CEOs, or Rockefellers, right. or the great or, man of history. Yeah, J.P. Of. Morgan, and and I think that you know, uh, reading that essay from Cesar Chavez, who you know was he was a union leader, but he was a worker before that, right? And 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 I think that that's. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad that, that it seems like your students reacted uh, positively to that. And I would like, I know there's probably some people questioning, well, what standard was that? Well, now with the new standards for the state of Alabama, you're supposed to focus on literature and voices originating outside of the United States. To where I would really like to encourage teachers to think about using those immigrant voices. So the students still have that base to relate to. And those are really powerful. You can teach them in a way that not only gets them to understand standards like fear of language, repetition, point of view, purpose, tone, theme, but it also gives them the experience they need to be successful in life. Because that's what our goal needs to be, to give them the tools they need to graduate and go into the workplace and decide if something is not right, if something is unsafe, to show them they have a voice. And what we ended up doing was when we were talking about how they had six-year-olds voting in elections, mm. and that was part of the Commonwealth, that the youngest workers they had actually voted in union elections were as young as six years old because they mm -hmm. were working on those farms. Right. So I just asked the question. I was like, well, can you think of any child labor happening mm -hmm. now? Mm. And they were like, well, I know that some of us work and we have to get work permits. I said, well, what about kids working in other conditions? And they had no idea because it hasn't been really widely put on the news or publicized. So we actually then pulled up and read the article about the Hyundai factory here in Alabama, mm. getting caught using underage children in a factory setting. And they were appalled. They were like, how did that happen? How did no one know? They were like, why did no one that was an adult there that knew they were working with them say anything so for a lot of the kids they were angry because it clearly showed in that article that oh yeah i knew i was working next to a bunch of 15 year olds right but nobody did anything so we talked about how dangerous it is to be complacent in your workplace that how not wanting to stir the pot or not wanting or being afraid really to have a voice is damaging to everyone so I think that they were really kind of surprised and shocked. And I heard them kind of talking about it in the hallway to other people. Like, hey, did you know here in Alabama at the Hyundai plant, yeah. they got caught with 15 year olds working all night, you know? Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I mean, the you know, definitely more productive, uh, probably more productive conversations than, than children have in school hallways sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So. 
Well, I just, I got to say, I think it's fantastic as a former educator. I, I know that feeling you had when that girl gave you a hug after class and that made it all worth it, uh, all the time and energy you put into that. Um, and I, I want to echo your sentiments. I want to encourage educators who may be listening to think outside the box, be bold in your choices, not just with the types of lessons you teach and the way you teach them, but with the text you're reading, make sure it's reflecting the diversity of the students you're serving. And, you know, I think there's an opportunity to do a lot while still teaching the standards. Um, if you if you know what you're doing as a teacher, you can teach some pretty bold things and really shake people's mindsets and still be able to say, I'm teaching what the state of Alabama requires me to teach. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of teachers in Alabama, because of the environment we're in, self-censor. Um, it's not so much that they're being told by a principal or, or a parent, you can't teach A, B, and C. That happens, unfortunately, more than it should. But I think a lot of times teachers are, they sense that environment and, and they're, being a little cautious in what they teach and, and what they uh, assign to their, their students to read. And so I think you've given us a great example of how you can be thoughtful, you can be engaging, um, you can meet students where they're at and get them to engage with content that is pretty deep, heavy material, but in a way that still works for them and a way where they, they walked away knowing something more about the world. Um, and the society they live in and the society they're going to participate in. I think that's, yeah, that's what it's all about, uh, 100%. And you, uh, you just make me miss teaching. <laughs> when, I, when I hear you know, a story like that uh, or when I hear some of the stories from my wife and, and how you can just really see a light bulb go off in a student's head, make them think a little differently about something, or you know, in the case of this student, feel seen and feel heard for the first time. That's huge. That's huge. And I would love to give y'all kind of another update. After that reading, we actually read the graphic novel, Mouse. Okay. That's what right. we next. And I would love for people to understand graphic novels are valid literature. And another kind of wonderful moment in teaching is when you have kids you've never seen read for pleasure, mm -hmm. ask to check out the second book from your classroom library. Yeah. I mean, I have eight books. All eight of those have been checked out, but they wanted to know more. The students were really engaged. They were like, well, they read about the Holocaust in a history book. That's not the same as actually kind of seeing a story told from someone's perspective. So I actually got with someone from Teen Screen. Sister Kip put me in touch with him as a UMWA member. And so next week when we come back, since they said they wanted to learn more about the Holocaust and what it meant to survive, um, they're actually going to come in and watch a documentary put on my teen screen. And then Suzanne, who's a Holocaust survivor, is actually going to zoom in with them next week wow. to talk about her experience in surviving Auschwitz and her and answer questions that the students have. So That's it's things awesome. like that that get students engaged. It's that life experience of having someone come into the classroom that's willing to be like, okay, let me answer your questions. Let me tell you exactly what it's like from a personal experience, because I can have them read from a textbooks all day long, 
that's not going to be nearly as valuable as having someone come in and tell their personal story. Hmm. So I'm really excited for that. I thought Adam, especially you, I thought would yes. be really excited. That is, that, that is happened. awesome. And I got to say like, you know, zoom, zoom has its problems, but like something like that to connect someone to a classroom in Brookwood, Alabama is just really, really cool. I think, um, I think your kids are going to get a lot out of that. And I think it's, it's great. They're already asking these questions and they're already interested in it. Um, and I, th I think you're right. Yeah. It's one thing to read about it, but it's another thing to actually, uh, relate to people on a human level and, and, and get in touch with that humanity. So I think that's just brilliant and I, I really appreciate it. And, um, if teachers are listening and they're interested in like these types of resources, uh, you probably have some to share Hayden. I know a couple I would share would be Zen education project. Uh, great, great lessons. Uh, I mean, including fully built lesson plans, but, uh, a great selection of text and, uh, teaching for change is another really good one. Uh, teaching Tolerance, I think, has renamed itself in the last couple of years and it's something else. But if you look for Teaching Tolerance, you can you can find it that way. Uh, but those were a couple recommendations I have. Uh, Zen Education Project in particular has labor history lesson plans. Mm. Um, so um, history teachers, y'all don't do the labor movement justice. Uh, most of them don't. So uh, those are some, some resources I would encourage folks to check into. And even if you're not a teacher, if you're a parent, I mean, parents, we are the first teachers. Uh, and I think we would make a mistake if we assume that our kids are going to get everything they need to know at school. Yeah. As great as our schools are in certain ways. But so whether you're a parent or a teacher, talk about these things with your kids from an early age, talk to them, what is a union? My daughter is in first grade. She does know what a union is. She knows what a strike is. Um, she knows about justice on some level. And I think, I think that's really important. So Hayden, I really appreciate what you're doing and I appreciate you being willing to share some of these ideas and, and hopefully uh, inspire someone else to, to, to get creative. I know I've already texted my wife the, the text of the speech. <laughs> so maybe her uh, AP language class will be looking at that pretty soon. Thanks, Hayden. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. All right. All right, folks. We've got a couple more topics to go into today. Um, let's check out uh, what wh we've got several bosses that are uh, really misbehaving here in, in Alabama and the South. Um, and so we'll go through these stories here kind of quickly. And let's start off with this one from a cement maker. There's a cement maker in South Alabama, they are paying $100,000 in fines for air pollution, uh, despite, quote, neither admitting nor denying the allegations in the settlement agreement. Because uh, that's just something that you do. You know, you just, even though that, you know, you're not at fault, you just write $100,000 checks, right? Something that I do all the time. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, don't you just love how rich folks can can write a check and, and make these problems go away? It's really great, I think. Um, but even even though they neither admit nor deny 
uh, quote-unquote, the allegations in the actual case. Strangely, in their statement, though, they say this, quote, We take responsibility for the actions, and in fact, since that time, we have taken specific actions to address fugitive dust emissions that result from offloading raw material from ships and barges and developed a plan for addressing such emissions from around the plant to ensure future compliance. So... Okay. All right. Even though they, quote, take responsibility for the, quote, actions, they then say later in the statement that they have no record of fugitive emission plumes on the dates alleged. And they have, but they've also not been able, quote, to conduct a timely investigation of those incidents, which were alleged to have happened, like, back in July and August and February. I don't know why you haven't been able to conduct a timely investigation. Like, that seems like a you problem. Um, so I don't know, just very, very weird, you know, they, they neither admit nor deny that the allegations happened, but they also take responsibility. I don't know. Super, super bungled, uh, statements here from this company. Uh, but these are, this is the evidence that, um, the investigators have pulled together in their case against this cement maker in South Alabama. Wholesome U.S. H-O-L-C-I-M-U-S is, oh, is the wow. cement maker. <laughs> On February 15th, an Alabama Department of Environmental Management ADEM inspector at the facility at the facility, like in person, reported, quote, significant fugitive emissions, unquote, from multiple sources at the plant. Uh, so this is an actual state investigator on site, on location, saying that they're seeing this in person. On July 27th, ADEM personnel at a nearby facility reported seeing, quote, a fugitive emission plume from the facility that was clearly visible from a distance. So here they're again able to see this in person. On August 3rd, ADEM received a complaint uh, from the public, quote, with pictures showing a large dust plume over the facility. So now we've got two eyewitness accounts from state investigators, and now we've got photographic ex- uh, evidence from the public. And then on August 8th, ADEM said it received a, quote, similar complaint for dust plumes at the facility on July 5th and August 3rd. So uh, seems... You know, pretty conclusive that that you know, even though the company is saying that they've got no evidence for the, that this happened, uh, it seems like the state of Alabama does. <laughs> but uh, the state of Alabama is allowing them to get away with just writing the check and nothing else, no official admission of guilt or or anything like that, because from and this is coming from the Alabama Department of Environmental Management. The, the department has agreed to the terms of this consent order in an effort to resolve the alleged violations cited herein without the unwarranted expenditure of state resources in further prosecuting the above violations. The order states, the department has determined that the terms con- uh, contemplated in this consent order are in the best interest of the citizens of Alabama. So basically, what the Alabama Department of Environmental Management is saying that in order to save money, they're not going to prosecute these people for polluting our environment, for polluting our air, uh, with eyewitness testimony, photographic evidence from multiple instances, even though they've got all this evidence against the company, they're not going to prosecute them to save money. 
to save money. And I mean, you know, working working people can't get away with that. Obviously, right. working. You know, you try think about if the settlement is a hundred thousand dollars. How much damage did they actually do? Exactly. Like, what, if you could put a quantity on the pollution. It would be so much more than $100,000. But imagine, so I mean, you know, I think an equivalent thing would be like, imagine you as a working person go up to like some rich person that lives in downtown Huntsville and, you know, bust up their $100,000 car. And then you say, whoops, you know, sorry, I'll write you, you know, $500 for a settlement and I'm not going to admit guilt. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. like, here's here's $500. I neither admit nor deny the allegations. Go away. You know, of course you couldn't do that. But that that's what these people are getting away with all the time. Because that's what $100,000 is to these big companies, right? They write $100,000 checks. They write million-dollar checks with the ease that you and I, uh, you know, buy like a microwave or food for our dog, right? So, I don't know. Uh, better than nothing, I guess, but... Yeah, uh, ADEM leaves a lot to be desired, both in, in their yeah, pursuit and, of regulation, <laughs> right. uh, their uh, punishment mechanisms for polluters. Um, again, you know, as we mentioned last week when we were talking about Toyota Mazda, you know, these companies, they know it's open season down here in Alabama. Obviously. They know they can and pollute the, the air, the right. water, the ground... And if the settlement for the Alabama Department of Environmental Management, you know, I mean, these people are not gung-ho, you know. I mean, maybe some of the individuals in ADEM are... But as an institution. But as an institution, ADEM is not this gung-ho environmental organization. Generally speaking, I would say it's Um, pro-polluter. Yeah. So for ADEM... To say that, look, you know, you need to you need to give us something because this is pretty bad, right? Right. You need to at least give us a hundred thousand dollars to make this go away. I mean, that, this is really really bad stuff for a state department in Alabama to be requiring this of a company. Um, really really bad stuff from Wholesome U.S. is uh, gotta love that name. <laughs> Hul- maybe it's Hulkim. I don't know. Um, here's another one. Keystone Foods. An Alabama food processing plant is paying $60,000 to settle to settle a federal lawsuit against them for pregnancy discrimination. Before we go any farther here, anytime we talk about pregnant workers, I always want to make sure to highlight the fact that Alabama has no state-level protections against pregnancy discrimination. We've got no state-level protections for pregnant workers. If it was up to the folks in Montgomery, it would be fine to discriminate you uh, because you're pregnant or because you could become pregnant. Um, a Democrat last session tried to remedy that by passing a pregnant workers fairness act, but a uh, pregnant workers fairness act, but that was shot down by the Republicans, um, who are very pro-life and pro-family and pro-mother, apparently. This came after a former employee was offered a job and had that job offer retracted after the company found, through a records review, that this former employee had previously filed a complaint with the EEOC against them for for pregnancy discrimination. So this is a former employee who worked worked for them before and alleged pregnancy discrimination before. Then for whatever reason, she was separated from the company. I'm not sure if she left or if she was fired or laid off or whatever. But then she came back and, and she had a job offer, and that job offer was retracted 
after the company saw that, oh, this is, this is a rabble rouser. This is somebody that's accused us of pregnancy discrimination in the past. So they retracted the offer. And, uh, and so uh, the, the former employee, uh, through the EEOC, filed a lawsuit against them. And, and now they're having to pay $60,000 because not only is it illegal to discriminate against workers on the basis of pregnancy or their ability to become pregnant, it is also illegal to retaliate against them for utilizing uh, their right to seek a redress for discrimination. It's illegal to blacklist people. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's illegal for companies to blacklist you if you've made discrimination complaints in the past. So also, in addition to paying the $60,000 settlement, Keystone is now under a federal consent decree for two years prohibiting them from discriminating and retaliating against employees. And according to AL.com, Keystone will have to issue a statement, a written statement to all employees at its Eufaula facility stating that it will not retaliate against employees or job applicants who engage in protected activity. So now would be a good time for them to unionize if they don't have a union, I think. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, also a good reminder that if you ever face retaliation for an EEOC claim, Document. that is its own EEOC claim. Yep. And you should pursue it. And you have 180 days, by and large, to, to do that. Um, it's been a while since we've done like a little EEOC training session. We might have to do one of those soon. Um given some of the cases we've been talking about lately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's another one, uh, some some more bosses behaving badly. They're just on a roll. Yeah, bosses behaving badly. I mean, that could be a regular segment, I think. That, that could be the whole show. <laughs> so just a couple of days ago, OSHA announced that it would be hitting Dollar General stores in Alabama, Florida, and Georgia with another... $2.77 million in fines. This comes only one month after an announcement that they would hit the same stores with yet another $1.68 million in fines. These two recent uh, you know, collections of fines over the past month bring the total fines for safety violations since just 2017, over the past five years, to 12 point three million dollars for dollar general stores in florida alabama and georgia 12.3 million dollars in osha fines i mean this is like folks osha does not go around i mean the same with adem i mean none of these none of even the federal federal government they're going to be a little bit better under the current administration than the state government obviously but even the federal government they're not going around here, you know, and, and since 2017, right? So part of this was under Trump's OSHA. They're not going around giving out these fines willy-nilly. And now Dollar General is up to $12.3 million. From AL.com's reporting on this, this means that Dollar General now qualifies for the severe violator enforcement program. Mm. That means that workplace safety citations can bring punitive actions that reach into corporate offices and bring the federal courts into play. I'm not sure exactly mechanically and logistically what that means, but it doesn't sound great for the corporate executives at, at Dollar General. This recent round of investigations found that fire extinguishers had not been labeled, mounted, or available 
There were, there were some instances where there was not a fire extinguisher available. Boxes were stored in front of electrical panels, creating a greater fire hazard. Some staircases that needed handrails did not have them, and unused openings in electrical cabinets were not kept closed, creating an electrocution hazard. Before this round of investigations, other investigations found that emergency exits were locked at Dollar General stores. Employees were under threat of being hit by falling boxes of goods. And again, fire extinguishers were not readily available. So, um... Glad to, glad to see a little bit of accountability there for Dollar General. I mean, they are they pop up all over. They, mm-hmm. It seems like a new one opens up, you know, between my, my drive to Athens to Huntsville. I feel like I, I run across a new Dollar General every month or so. Um, they're opening up everywhere. They crowd out local businesses. Um, they pay totally crappy wages. Yeah. And oftentimes tend to prey on more vulnerable type workers. Um, so, yeah, I, I really uh, I find Dollar General to be a pretty repulsive company. Yeah. From AL.com's reporting again, quote, Dollar General has shown a pattern of alarmingly willful disregard for federal safety standards, choosing to place profits over their employees' safety and well-being, said Assistant Secretary for Occupational Safety and Health Doug Parker. Neighborhood stores exist to support the needs of their communities, the same communities in which many Dollar General employees live, and and that support must include following laws designed to keep workers safe from preventable injuries or worse. So, glad to see some amount of accountability for Dollar General. Uh, And the last of these... uh, bad boss stories that we had lined up here was with uh, was with a uh, Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme Donut Corporation has agreed to pay 1.1 million dollars in back wages and liquidated damages to 516 workers to resolve overtime violations in multiple locations found as part of a US Department of Labor investigation. Wow. What started as an investigation into one location in Kentucky soon expanded into an investigation of every Krispy Kreme store nationwide after investigators at that Kentucky location found that violations were systemic and widespread. Like there was a protocol for doing this. And that protocol was that these overtime violations, they happened because Krispy Kreme was systemically and artificially lowering the rate of pay for its employees for its calculations of their overtime rate, right? So, so they're paying them their standard rate, but then for the purposes of calculating their overtime pay, they were not taking into account everything, and they were artificially lowering their standard rate of pay so that that 1.5 times, once you go over 40 hours a week, that, that time and a half, that was lower than actual time and a half, right? So they ended up paying these employees less than they were owed under the law for working over 40 hours a week. And so these 516 employees, obviously, you know, the payouts for each individual one is going to be a little bit different. But averaged out, it's like $2,000 for each, you know, for each one. So some are going to get more, some are going to get less. But that's, you know, that's a nice little little paycheck. And hopefully 
uh, and and you know, Krispy Kreme is, is supposed to be you know doing the right thing uh, going forward. Um, you know, they they agreed to follow the law <laughs> uh, as a result of this. So we'll see if that actually happens. But uh, yeah, there's there's a, a little more accountability uh, for for bad bosses. So glad to see that. Yeah, I do love some Krispy Kreme donuts. I do not love cheating bosses. No, absolutely not. So, uh, Adam, let's wrap up with some uh, November labor history. Let's do it, and and we'll call it a day. Um, I know it's Iron Bowl Saturday. For some of you listening, that means absolutely nothing. For some of you, it's a big deal. That means everything. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. For some of you, it probably means too much. Uh, maybe if you're not our listener, but uh, I'm sure if you're uh, tuning in from the state of Alabama, you know it's a big deal today. And we just came off the Thanksgiving holiday. Again, I hope everyone had a good one. Uh, shout out to all the airline employees this week. I know you're dealing with a lot of extra, so that's why I'm wearing my Delta AFA button today. So as we close out the month of November, I wanted to take a few minutes to share some of the November anniversaries in labor history, as well as uh, important days of recognition for social justice. I compiled this information primarily from the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators. So should have mentioned that in a chat with Hayden Wright, the Planning to Change the World planner. Excellent resource if you're interested in having conversations with young people about social justice. So this excellent planner is published by the Education for Liberation Network. And I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, Zen Education Project, which does some really cool This Day in History, hashtag T-D-I-H, uh, This Day in History posts. So let's get started. November is National American Indian Heritage Month, which recognizes the significant contributions of Native Americans. So it's fitting that we next mention November 2nd as the 50th anniversary of Native American protesters' occupation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs headquarters. The Trail of Broken Treaties protests aimed at redressing grievances of the Native American population for centuries of ill-treatment by the U.S. government. When they arrived in D.C. and found no government official willing to discuss their 20-point manifesto, the protesters took over the BIA building, occupying it for a week. Government infiltrators incited violence which resulted in significant damage to the building as well as to the public perception of the Native Americans' cause. Always got to watch out for saboteurs. November 3rd was the 50th anniversary of New York protests of the Rehabilitation Act's veto. Activists for disabled citizens blocked traffic in Manhattan to protest President Richard Nixon's veto of the Rehabilitation Act, which would have provided a wide range of assistance for people with disabilities. One group of protesters gathered outside the Roosevelt Hotel, where the committee to re-elect Nixon was located. They entered the building, staging a sit-in, demanding that Nixon debate them on the issue. Now, obviously, that didn't happen, but others protested outside the federal building, and it is remembered as a major day of action for people with disabilities. On November 5th in 1867, delegates gathered in Montgomery, Alabama to draft a new state constitution as required by the Reconstruction Acts. Prior to the Reconstruction era, no southern state had a state-financed public education system, even for whites. Alabama's new constitution established a centralized board of education and mandated that schools receive 20% of state revenue. 
By 1871, nearly 55,000 African American and 87,000 white children were attending public schools. The advances from the Constitution ended in Alabama and elsewhere with the brutal attacks on Reconstruction and the rewrite of Alabama's state constitution in 1875, and then again in 1901. But a lot of folks do not uh, know how Reconstruction truly changed the game when it comes to public education. November 6th was the 10th anniversary of the legalization of same-sex marriage in multiple states. On November 6, 2012, voters in Maine, Maryland, and the District of Columbia passed referenda enabling same-sex couples to legally marry. In Minnesota, voters rejected a constitutional amendment barring same-sex marriage. These ballot measures marked the first time that same-sex marriage was approved by the popular vote rather than by legislative or court action. It was a clear sign that the tide had turned in voter sentiment on the issue. And it's sad to think that in 2022... There are elites with power who want to move backwards on this and so many other issues of civil rights. A lot was happening November 8th in history and today. November 8th was Election Day. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives, 35 Senate seats, 36 state and three territorial governorships, and numerous state and local government offices were all on the ballot. As were several ballot measures in states like Illinois that codified union rights, and in Tennessee that unfortunately enshrined right to work in their state constitution. November 8th was also the 70th anniversary of the Mayabuye uprising. As part of the defiance campaign led by the African National Congress, the uprising took place at a beer hall in Kimberley to protest South African apartheid. 13 protesters were killed and 78 others were seriously wounded when government security forces opened fire on the protesters. The Defiance Campaign was a series of acts of civil disobedience to protest the apartheid regime, similar to the acts of defiance of black Americans protesting Jim Crow. Also on November 8th, but 130 years ago, 30,000 factory and dock workers staged the 1892 New Orleans General Strike, demanding union recognition, closed shops, wage increases, and more. They were joined by non-industrial laborers such as musicians, clothing workers, clerks, utility workers, streetcar drivers, and printers. Most importantly, African-American and white workers united despite active attempts to divide the workers on racial lines. November 9th was the birthday of abolitionist Elijah Parrish Lovejoy, who lived from 1802 to 1837, Lovejoy, a white Presbyterian minister, was the editor of the St. Louis Observer, which was an abolitionist anti-Jacksonian paper. After his printing press had been destroyed for a third time because of his critical opinions on slavery, Lovejoy moved to Alton, Illinois, where he started another abolitionist paper called the Alton Observer. In November 1837, a mob attacked the paper's warehouse and Lovejoy was murdered. November 10th in 1898, white supremacists murdered African Americans in Wilmington, North Carolina, and deposed the elected Reconstruction-era government in a coup d'etat. After the riot, thousands of black citizens fled. In 1900, the North Carolina legislature effectively stripped African Americans of the vote through the grandfather clause and ushered in the worst of the Jim Crow laws in North Carolina. November 11th was Veterans Day, originally intended to mark the end of World War I on the 11th day of the 11th month, 
but which now celebrates all those who have served in the U.S. Armed Forces. November 11th was also the 30th anniversary of the publishing of Race and the Incidents of Environmental Hazards. This volume of 16 articles, written primarily by scholars of color, exposes the facts of environmental inequity and its consequences. It is only the second book of its kind following uh, Dr. Robert Bullard's 1990 Dumping in Dixie, which expanded on his 1983 paper, Solid Waste and the Black Houston Community. And when I was in Houston a couple weeks ago, I was lucky enough to hear Dr. Bullard speak. He's considered kind of the uh, intellectual uh, grandfather of the environmental justice movement and really, really appreciate the work he has done to tie in the ways race and pollution and environmental destruction are all tied together. Race, class, pollution, the environment, uh, there's there are a lot of connections there, and he's been doing just amazing work over the past several decades documenting it. On November 13, 1953, during the height of the McCarthy era, Robin Hood and his band of merry outlaws made headlines. Mrs. White of the Indiana Textbook Commission called for a ban of Robin Hood in all school books for promoting communism because he stole from the rich to give to the poor. In response to White's attempts at censorship, as well as the larger McCarthy witch hunt it was part of, five students from Indiana University at Bloomington started the Green Feather Movement. They had been meeting in a religious fellowship at a Baptist church and were moved by their faith to take action. So, lest you think the ridiculous book-banning cultural wars of today are something new, they're not. We're still living in the Red Scare, folks. November 15th was the 100th anniversary of the workers' massacre in Guayaquil, Ecuador. After a three-day general strike, which left the town without water, electricity, and adequate food, Ecuador's president and the unions came to an agreement to end the strike and accede to the workers' demands. Security forces, however, didn't get the news and opened fire on the unarmed protesters, killing at least 300 The next day, the settlement was signed, but the damage was done, and relations among labor, management, and government were irrevocably broken. On November 16, 1989, six Jesuit scholars and priests, their their housekeeper and her daughter, were murdered by the U.S.-backed, trained, and equipped military in El Salvador. The priests were internationally recognized scholars who wrote and spoke extensively about the need for peace and the root causes of the war in El Salvador. They were among the 75,000 people killed during this period. November 17th is International Students' Day, an international observance and celebration of student community, multiculturalism, and inclusivity. It was originally intended to commemorate the storming of Czech universities by Nazi Germany, and colleges and universities now mark it as a celebration of their international students. November 19th in 1915, the state of Utah executed Joe Hill, labor organizer, songwriter, and member of the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. Joe Hill became famous around the world after a Utah court convicted him of murder. Even before the international campaign to have his conviction reversed, Joe Hill was well known on picket lines and at workers' rallies as the author of popular labor songs and as an IWW agitator. November 20th is the Transgender Day of Remembrance, 
This day is set aside to memorialize those who were killed because of anti-transgender hatred. In November 1919, in Bogalusa, Louisiana, agents of the Great Southern Lumber Company formed a gang to threaten African-American labor organizer Saul Dacus. He was trying to form a union for black laborers at the sawmill under very dangerous conditions. On November 21st, company gunmen and members of the Self-Preservation and Loyalty League, the SPLL, showed up at Dacus' home. He and his family survived the shootout that evening. The next day, on November 22nd in 1919, Dawkins bravely walked through town, accompanied by white supporters and allies in the labor movement. Determined to undermine any efforts at interracial solidarity, the Great Southern Lumber Lumber Company gang-murdered four of those white allies, including the American Federation of Labor District Representative. Dawkins and his family were able to escape to New Orleans, The Bogalusa Massacre is an example of the violence interracial labor organizing experienced from racist anti-labor forces in the early early 20th century. Uh, Yet another example is on November 23, 1887, when the Louisiana militia, aided by bands of prominent white citizens, shot and killed 30 to 60 unarmed striking black sugar workers in what became known as the Thibodeau Massacre. Black Louisiana sugarcane workers, in cooperation with the racially integrated Knights of Labor, had gone on strike at the beginning of November 1887 over their meager pay issued in company scrip, not cash. The scrip was redeemable only at the company's store, where excessive prices were charged and they routinely ripped off the workers. This was part of the violent end to the Reconstruction era of the United States. It was also a devastating attack on organized labor in the South. November 24th is Thanksgiving, also known as a day of mourning among some indigenous communities. And November 24th was also the 10th anniversary of the Tazreen Fashion Factory fire in Bangladesh. The fire caused at least 117 deaths and injuries to more than 200 workers, making it the deadliest factory fire in Bangladesh history. More than 4 million Bangladeshi, most of them young women, work in garment factories for less than $40 a month under extremely unsafe conditions. When fire broke out, managers ordered workers to keep working. The exit doors were locked, and the windows on the lower floors had security bars, trapping workers inside. I want to send our remembrance to all these workers and so many others around the world. Um, International solidarity is a must. November 25th, yesterday, Black Friday, uh, is known in some circles as Buy Nothing Day, an international day of protest against consumerism, strategically celebrated on Black Friday, the busiest shopping day of the year in the U.S., uh, which also makes it a day that features a lot of strikes for that very reason. I want to take this moment to give a shout out to all of the folks in retail and service industries. Whether you're at a restaurant, a mall, a big box store, or a small shop, shout out to all of you working through the holiday madness. You are on the front lines of America's consumerist spectacle, and of course virus transmission, we should not forget. You deal with some of the worst aspects of our fellow humanity, and you work while others spend time with friends and family. You deserve a raise, you deserve a union, 
You deserve a contract that guarantees due process and health care and retirement and more. Thanks for all you do, those of you working in these sectors, and please continue to organize. November 26th is the birthday of abolitionist and women's rights advocate Sarah Grimke. Sarah Grimke and her sister Angelina rebelled against their father, a North Carolina slaveholder. They were staunch abolitionists and women's rights advocates, speaking out publicly at a time when most women often didn't. The Grimke sisters were the first women to speak before a state legislature as representatives of the American Anti-Slavery Society. Their ideas were controversial to many in their community, to say the least. Angry mobs burned their speeches and their writings were burned in protest. But I think it's worth remembering the Grimkes and so many others uh, who stood strong in the abolitionist movement at a time of, of great pressure against them. Uh, and while we can reflect on the many tragedies of American history, it's also worth remembering the many, many good people who fought against them. And on that note, November 26th is the 110, 110th anniversary of the release of the Lawrence Textile Strikers. Joseph James Etter, Arturo Giovanetti, and Joseph Caruso were arrested for the murder of a bystander at the 1912 Lawrence Textile Strike. They were released after international groups protested and went on strike in solidarity. Despite evidence that the men were not present during the killing of Anna Lopizo, they were accused of murder and kept in metal cages throughout their trial. It is still unknown whether Lopizo was killed by strikers or police. November 29th is the 10th anniversary of the United Nations approval of Palestine as an observer state. The UN upgraded Palestine's status in the international body from observer to observer state, and the adoption of the resolution was timed to coincide with the observance of the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. The member states that voted for the change did so to express, quote, the urgent need for the resumption and acceleration of peace negotiations. Among the nine countries voting against the resolution, unsurprisingly, were Canada, the United States, and Israel. And finally, it was 105 years ago this month when the Bolshevik Revolution broke out in Russia. The Bolsheviks led by Vladimir Lenin, sorry, the Bolsheviks led by Vladimir Lenin stormed the palace and toppled the provisional government of Alexander Kerensky which itself had only been established earlier in 1917 after the hated czar was toppled in the February Revolution. Of course, due to the, the differences in calendars, the February and October re revolutions in 1917 Russia took place in March and November on our calendars. So what everyone thinks, whatever one wants to think about the Russian Revolution, the many revolutions, and the brutal civil war that followed, there's no doubt these events shaped the course of the 20th century and beyond. So that's all I have for November's important holidays, anniversaries, and days of recognition, days of working class history. Thanks for that, Adam. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, we're going to be Working on this week some pre-tape stuff because I'm going to be on vacation next week. I think Ben's going to be out of town. Yeah, uh, so yeah, we're going to so. probably have pre-recorded episode next week. Um, 
working on some guests. We have some some great guests lined up. Some have had to back out for for different reasons. Um, so looking forward to it though. We'll we'll come up with something uh, yep. that I think you'll enjoy. Uh, if you have any suggestions and feedback, of course, we always appreciate that. If you got guest ideas or, or topics you would like to hear us talk about, um, always feel free to send that in. We really do appreciate that. So stay tuned for that. Um, and we'll see you uh, sort of next week. Solidarity, y'all. Bye, y'all.